We all have dreams. Some of them even keep us awake at night, wondering if they'll ever be within reach. In this episode, we want to introduce you to an Olympian who knows all too well both the triumph of success and the crushing weight of failure. He explains to us how he reached the unreachable with a specific trained state of mind and shows us how we can benefit from his experience. This is a podcast about summoning B2B marketing and the account-based mindset. This is Reach. We're so glad to have you with us again today. And as usual, my name is Hiromi. And with me, I have CEO and agency founder, Jason Thorgerson. Hi, welcome. And Chief Creative Officer, Garrett Grinsky. Hey. So our guest in this series is really a well-known celebrity. I'm sure you've heard of his story, but you may or may not recognize his real name. He's Dudley Tal Stokes. Dudley Tal Stokes. Founding member of the Jamaica bobsleigh team, four-time Olympian, and presently performance coach. And so let me ask you guys, before Tal met with us, what did you know about his story? Being a 90s kid, the only point of reference is Cool Runnings. We're looking for a sponsor for the first Jamaican bobsleigh team. (laughs) Their dream was to compete in the Olympics. But they chose a sport (laughs) they knew nothing about. Great. Very good. This is the true story of four unlikely athletes. How about I beat your butt right now? How about I draw a line down the middle of your head so it looks like a butt? Who weren't prepared. (laughs) In my mind, this was truth. This was based on a true story. So that's what I was running with, right? I'm like, oh, they're all track athletes. You know, the coaches, John Candy, and he's a cheater. And they they cheat, you know, and it's like, I knew the story and, you know, the antagonism between all the other teams. And in my mind, that was gospel. Like, it's it's all I had to go on. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you think about what you recall as a young person liking about the movie. It's really all about the good feeling that you got from watching that movie. I agree. I don't think as a young person, I really digested the point of that movie at all. Honestly, in in hindsight, it's all about the underdog and the resilience of character and all these things. But as a child, the only thing I remember taking away from that movie is Jamaica is awesome. Like, I remember that year when when it came out, I don't think Jamaica was on my radar at all. I don't know if I'd ever given it a first thought. But after that movie, kids wearing the colors and the ponchos and trying to be cool talking with a Jamaican accent. Yeah, now that now that you're saying this, the emotional element of the story is the thing that I think I connected with. It was a feel good story. And yeah. like you said, yeah, it's raising Jamaica and your consciousness to being cool. It really yeah. kind of had that effect. Yeah. So what I found was interesting is discovering how much of it was real and how much of it was a Hollywood production. That was mind altering for me just to mm-hmm. just to go through that. No, it's true. His story to me was actually far more interesting than the distilled version that they made into a movie. There was a lot more depth and struggle, heartache, personal development, character development. 
Yeah, and cool runnings. I don't think there was a lot personally on the driver's story. I mean, there was a bit, but again, as Garrett expressed, it's like how much of that is really true and his journey to get there really wasn't developed in the movie. So by hearing Tal and his story, I agree. It was way more fascinating to know how he got to where he is, how he came into that circumstance, and then what it was like to be in his headspace going through the experience and even now looking back on it. Really fascinating. Understanding more of his story and what made him tick as a human made it more interesting and more compelling, I think. Yeah, take a listen to Tal's story for yourself and see if you agree. As is often the case, truth is stranger than fiction. I was born on the island of Grand Turk in the Turks and Caicos, a British colony. My parents were there as missionaries and I lived there until I was five. Then we moved back to the north coast of Jamaica, the parish of St. Mary in the village of Galena, very rural. And I grew up walking for hours and hours through mountains, climbing hills, exploring caves, fishing, hunting mostly birds and crabs. A fantastic rural upbringing. Then we moved to the big city of Kingston and I went to the world-famous Calabar High School where Herb McKinley, Jamaica's first Olympic medalist, was educated and in fact was a coach of the track team for the time I was there. As a nine-year-old, I embraced my brother on a beach when he was eight. We raced on a beach, best of three, and he won two. My conclusion was that I was not fast, so I turned away from track and started to focus on playing football. I had not realized how central to Jamaican culture track and field is. I mean, I don't yeah. know that I still have a full grasp of that, but it seems like track and field is it. Soccer, football, baseball, all those sports can take a hike to track and field in Jamaica. Is that the sense that you guys got? Well, I think it like for him to realize this at what was he nine years old that he's making a conclusion like I'm not that fast. He's already in his headspace of like, am I going to make it as a runner? So to me, like yeah. that in itself demonstrates what a cultural thing it is to be a runner. Maybe this is a skewed perspective, but in the States, I feel like a track and field is more of an activity, not a goal. You know, I don't know. Is that fair to say? That's interesting. Like in Canada, I'm, I'm thinking like as a young person going through school, like track and field was part of your physical, mm -hmm. and, you know, structure. I right. remember doing Sure. I think it boils down to funding. Every movie about teenagers in the States has me believe that the football team gets all the funding and the library gets no funding and neither does do the yes. arts. And then right. if you go to other countries, that's where the people go, right? Like the people follow the money. Kids recognize the family dream, maybe that the son plays as a quarterback. And so in Canada, there's parts of physical education, but every kid in your class in grade four, five, six, seven is in hockey, you right. know, at least where we were on the prairies. It was like hockey, 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 hockey. Because you have someone to aspire to be there, right? Who is it? 
Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Or if you had Ray like Warren. a really, a really prairie existence, you know, it would have been Dale Howardchuck or even my dad. You know, he would talk about Bobby Hall and these kinds of guys. There are some very niche role models, and so I imagine Tal in Jamaica. They probably have these exact style of humans. But in track and field where they're like, I'm this guy as they're running down the street and beating all their friends in a foot race, you know, kind of thing on the beach, as he talked about. Right. Well, and for them to be going to this school where the guy was the coach, right? Herb McKinley, he's a track and field sprinter. According to Wikipedia, in 1948 and 1952, he did six events in the Olympics and won one gold and three silvers. This guy was the Gretzky of Jamaica. Yeah. Years later, I remember coming home one day from training for the junior team in tears. My mother met me in the kitchen and asked me why was I crying. And I told her that I did not make the team. I was cut from the football team. And she said, why were you cut? And I said, I don't know. The coach called out 18 and I was not in it. Grabbed a notebook, grabbed a pen, and marched off. We lived on this school compound. My father was chaplain, so we had staff housing very close to the school buildings and to the fields. And she marched out to the football field and she came back uh, half an hour later and she had a comprehensive list running with like 16 things that I needed to improve. And she threw that list down and said, Well, there it is. That's why I didn't make the team fix those things. And so, that was an important life lesson as to how you confront failure. The things were not, you know, easily fixed, not all of them. One of the things I happened upon was heading the football. Not popular in Jamaica and in, in the Caribbean at the time, but I figured that by heading the football, if I could become good at that, then that would be competitive advantage to, to making teams in the future. And so I spent the whole summer heading the football and just daydreaming, I thought it was. Now I know it was visualization, but seeing situations and working through things in my head, which eventually transferred into my entire play. And in the next season, I was in the team. I used to work with a CEO and he had a famous line. He would say, self-awareness is a superpower. You know, so it's not just knowing what you're good at. It's knowing what you're bad at. And that is just as powerful because now he has a list of, he said, 16 things he needed to improve. Very clear structure, right? It really helps me to have a checklist when I need to work on a set of things. Something about seeing it on a list that really helps. But it's interesting that even Tal, when he was talking about working on those things, he said that it was important for him to visualize the problems that he needed to solve. Yeah, for you hear about in athletic endeavors, performance endeavors, uh, this idea of visualizing a certain process or situation or outcome. Perhaps that's what he means here. He, his mom had made him aware of things he needed to improve. And it sounds like here, as he's improving on some of the things, he also mentally visualized how he was going to use those in the actual game itself. I feel like, too, he's talking about something different than, oh, I see myself as Tiger Woods making the final putt at the Masters. Because every kid does that, right? Like, there's a role model, kind of like role-playing. But what he's mm -hmm. talking about here is seeing situations 
working through things in his head that translate into his play that actually helped him get better. You know, like in my mind, he, he sounds a little bit like Bobby Fischer, like a, a chess mm. player where he's seeing moves, maybe back to the list that his mom gave him. That's what he's thinking through. And, and it's almost strategic what he's talking about here, like it's strategy. Yeah. And many chess shows or chess movies, you see them doing exactly that. That's a great analogy, Garrett. They're placing the pieces around the board in advance before they put their finger on a piece. They're visualizing what needs to happen next to, to make it a successful move. I think, too, this idea that he brought up about heading the football, it's interesting. I can imagine him seeing situations, working through things in his head so that he could head the football. That's what he's working out in his head. How can I put this into practice? And I can only imagine that there's probably 15 other things on that list that he was working through. Okay, how do I get to that point? How do I solve that problem? And then works through it in his head. That's what he sounds like he's doing. Yeah, you're saying like some yeah. of those things are not easily fixed. You know, this idea of the the heading the football. What What is the competitive advantage that would make him unique to get on the team? How often do we do that? As you were saying, Garrett, maybe even this awareness of what is my skill set? What are my excelling qualities? How can I use these to my advantage? That reminds me, actually, what's her name? Sally Hogshead. She has Hogshead. a book. Yeah, it's an interesting last name. You are just making this stuff no up. Joke, Hogshead. No joke. no joke. Look it up. Okay. Sally Hogshead, how to fascinate. That's it. How based to fascinate. on based on who you are, fascinate with what you already have. Hashtag yeah. Sally Hogshead. Hashtag book sales. Hashtag. But it's basically like identifying your personality profile and doing more of, of you, understanding who you are, and then leaning into it. That's what makes you mm. unique and different and et cetera. And many people might say, oh, I like what I see in this person. I want to be that person. Mm -hmm. Man, they're just such an eloquent speaker. Garrett, the way he leans into the mic, it just... <laughs> yes. Unparalleled. <Right>. Unparalleled. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it's kind of beautiful. It's it's just lean into more of who you are. And like, yeah. I think in his case, like that's what he recognized. Hey, I have something unique. How do I visualize it to get better at it, to level yeah. up and go even further? I really like that. I want to read that book now because I feel like we do have a tendency to idolize people that have qualities we don't have. We spend our lives failing at imitating other people when we would excel at being ourselves. So to be honest, I found my perception of visualization coming into prepping for this podcast way different from where I now think about visualization. Like I did come in with a preconception that this is like a new age, unvetted, like people doing healing right. with crystals kinds of things. <laughs> it reminds me of the example of Jim Carrey when he was on Oprah. Famously, he said he wrote himself a $10 million check for acting services rendered. Is that true? I wrote myself a check for $10 million for acting services rendered. And uh, I dated it Thanksgiving, 1995. And I put it in my wallet and I kept it there and it deteriorated and deteriorated and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, but then just before Thanksgiving, 1995, I found out that I was going to make $10 million on, I think it was Dumb and Dumber. Maybe. Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Yeah. So you visualize yourself like yeah, yeah. visualization works if you work and hard. And so yeah. 
visualizing an outcome. You know, that wasn't necessarily the steps like Tal's talking about here, different circumstances and situations, but it gives you an example of what does this visualization thing even mean? The ability to see what the outcome will be and work towards that. Well, you think back to being that age, preteens, maybe early teens, spending a summer just daydreaming about the potential of life. It almost feels like a waste of time. But for Jim Carrey, it's almost as though that helped him in some way. And I think that's what we're looking for is how does it help? What aspect of this childhood summer is actually preparing you for success in the future? Later on, I went to play for uh, another high school. I made the team, I played in a, a practice game away and was pretty satisfied with my performance. But my father, who was by this time the principal, had come to the game and on the way back home, he, he was driving, he was visibly upset. So after an hour of silence in the car, I asked him what was the problem. And he said, uh, you're playing like a coward. That came as a big surprise to me. But after the initial hurt and thinking about it, I, I took what he was saying. I understood it. And I started working on those aspects of my game. Become more full-blooded, laying everything on the line. And eventually that became sort of a philosophy of how I played sport and ultimately played life. I was a child of privilege in Jamaica. My parents weren't wealthy, but they were well-educated. They believed in education. By the time I came into my teenage years, I had a, a broad range of knowledge and my parents had a lot of connections. That's not true for most Jamaicans and opportunities are constricted. So Jamaicans end up traveling. There are more Jamaicans living outside of Jamaica than inside. UK, USA, Canada very large communities. As a person of privilege, connected person, I had possibilities at home. My mom wanted me to be a lawyer. I had a conversation with a family doctor, a guy named Barry Hastings, who also was a, a reserve soldier, and he knew our family situation. And we had two boys coming to university age, and there wasn't all that much money to go around. And he suggested that I join the army. He said they pay for everything you'll get to travel the world and a great education. Thought about that over the summer. And when I announced that I was joining the army, that was like a, a bomb went off in the house. My mother was visibly distressed and my father was quietly pleased. He was a serving officer. I applied and by September I'd been selected and I was in the Jamaica Defence Force. Probably my father's influence as well. I was selected for officer training at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is the, the UK equivalent of West Point. So it was sort of the elite of the elite. I was selected for flight training off to Canada. It was while in Canada that I further refined my whole visualization approach. So they had what's called a static simulator, which just sits there. It doesn't actually move and it's really meant for you to master your procedural moves of which switch to pull now and where to turn. 
but as I had sit in it for hours and take it through all the flight maneuvers, loops and rolls and landings and takeoffs, engine failures, all through the power of the mind and then having the tactile touch, the feel for the yoke and throttle. I turned it into a full-blown simulator just through the use of my imagination. In a year, I came back to Jamaica as a fixing and helicopter pilot. And what's cool um, is like it's it's kind of like thinking through the lens of a child and carrying yeah. that perspective forward. Like even in this flight simulator training, that's a static simulator. It sounds like to me is just like this chair on the floor. <laughs> okay, we need you to role play. <laughs> You know, a chair take, in a box. Yeah. Take off landing, you know, like every kid. Yeah. Maybe a cardboard box there, decorate it however you want. I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that, but that ability to be childlike in a way and bring it forward into practices and different activities that we do now as adults. How often is that stuff highlighted? Right. Never. You know, right. Or in school, the idea of visualizing yourself going through a process. Or the idea of visualizing yourself getting to an outcome, is that taught? Mm, you know, is that, no, is that I, something that's supported? You know, it's like all these things are like stripped back from us. Then you get in the work world, again, is this brought forward or is this like stripped back? No, it's like we need you to do this job, this task, this whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just so fascinating that from a young age to now, he's in the military, he's using this process of visualization. He's actually enhancing this skill set that he developed at a young age to get him yeah. to where he wants to go. It's so true. Here, he is like fully harnessing imagination and using it to his advantage. And for most of us, we lose that. We lose that childness that Jason's talking about because we want to be so professional. We want to be so whatever it is that we just like kind of forget how to do that and yet it's such an amazing skill yeah it sounds like though that it's not that you let that imagination run wild it, it sounds like there is some effort that goes into that you need to exercise it or hone it in some way yeah you know what it's interesting there's uh this idea of imagination being like muscle you work it, you exercise it, you use it in a specific way so that it produces a, a certain kind of strength. I think especially mm-hmm. as athletes, that's a relatable thing. It's taking that power and focusing it and harnessing it towards something. Yeah, in his specific case, right? I mean, being a pilot, that was a constraint was how do I use this in flying this aircraft? How do I simulate the feeling that I'm going to experience? And it's interesting, there's research around this not only being more efficient, but what does it do for us in terms of managing the level of stress that we experience? Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. In trying to understand visualization as it relates specifically to executives, to businesses, I was Googling and found an article by Dr. Frank Niles, who is a contributor at the Huffington Post. So I passed his name on to Jason. Jason reached out, asked him a bunch of questions, and here's what we found out. Visualization is really a process or technique, if you will, of creating a vivid mental image of some future event, some goal you want to achieve. And it really involves all of our senses. There's actually substantial body of research that shows the efficacy of visualization to increase performance. 
And I'll give you just one example. Uh, a Dr. Blaslato at uh, University of Chicago did a study in 1996 on visualization, and it was with basketball players. He broke them into three groups. The first group, he told them not to touch a basketball for 30 days, no practicing or anything. The second group was told to practice free throws for a half hour each day for 30 days. And then the third group was told to come to the gym every day for 30 days and spend a half hour with their eyes closed, simply visualizing hitting every free throw. Well, what do the results show? After 30 days, the first group of students who did not practice showed zero improvement. That's not surprising. The second group who had practiced every day showed a 24% improvement. And then the third group who hadn't done any physical free throwing showed a 23% improvement in their free throw completions, basically the same as the group that practiced every day. And that's just one study. There's countless others. There's studies that look at the, the impact of visualization on students taking exams. And lo and behold, when students envision themselves completing each question successfully, it actually increases their test performance and reduces stress for them. And so that's not a spiritual, pokey, new age kind of thing. He is literally practicing. He is understanding what are the cause and effect of my actions. That's a good point, though. It's like mental practice, right? I mean, however we want to slice it. Mental preparation, mental practice, mental rehearsal. Mm -hmm. It's our brain that's actually doing all this. And our brain is what receives and processes everything we do anyway. So it's just mm. trying to do it in our in our head before we actually do it. It's interesting. There's this TED Talk by uh, Patty Dobrowolski. And she talks about how our mind makes these kinds of assumptions about stuff that we're not physically looking at all the time. Here's where the magic begins. Your brain knows you. It's cataloged everything you've ever seen, heard, experienced, real or imagined. You just have to ask it to put the pieces together for you. It's as simple as that. We live in a three-dimensional world, but the light falls on the retina in a two-dimensional fashion. And the brain, it has to cope with it. So how does it deal with this extra dimension? It guesses. It guesses. And just as it can guess where your cup of coffee is when it goes to pick it up, it can correctly guess what the three bold steps are yeah, so that when you, you should take. You reach for a cup of coffee, you're not always looking at that cup. And amazingly, you can put your fingers exactly where they need to go based solely on images that are stored in your mind. So maybe there is potential to hone that or expand that ability. I think that's what she's saying, right? I appreciated her TED talk too. She said, how can you get yourself to do the boldest thing? She says, by drawing the most compelling picture. Because even if you're not a visual thinker, you can exercise that muscle using other senses to visualize what that outcome is, and then what the steps are to where you want to be and draw it out. And, th and there's a difference. You know, Tal spoke a little bit early in this experience about him daydreaming as a child. And, and maybe that's the difference is that there's something specific in mind. It's not just like mm -hmm. empty headedness. This is about really visualizing something. It's not like a, a gimmicky thing either. And it doesn't mean just wishful thinking. If we think it, we become it. It's just bringing in all the senses to really think through what we're trying to achieve and what are the steps to get there. To what extent do we do that? Not very much. Maybe a lot of that's the time factor, but has this been something that's really emphasized? I think there's, there's opportunity for improvement in terms of how we do it.
So I was listening to the Andy Rowe show on YouTube. He was interviewing Dr. Tara Swart. She's a neuroscientist. And she was talking all about the effect of visualization on people. So they took this group of octogenarians, 80-something-year-olds. And here's what she said. There are three groups of people in their 80s. One group, control group, carried on like normal for, for one week. One group reminisced about being 20 years younger for a week. And one group actually moved into houses that looked like their houses did 20 years ago. If they weren't using, you know, reading glasses or walking sticks 20 years ago, those were taken away from them for a week. And they had photos around the house of them from 20 years ago. And they got sent newspapers every day that were dated 20 years ago. And they had to talk as if like they were in that time. At the end of a week, they had increased physical strength, increased musculoskeletal coordination, improved visual acuity. When people were shown before and after photos of them after one week, everyone rated them as looking younger after a week. And they had improvements in mood and stuff as well. But and so it's like the power of the brain to go through a practice or a rehearsal actually changes the physical part of it for you as a human. It's very interesting stuff. Super interesting, super interesting stuff. So we're starting to get a picture of how visualization may have helped tal up until this point, but we haven't gotten to the main part of the story yet. So the idea for Jamaica bobsleigh occurred to two Americans living in Jamaica. One worked for the United States Embassy, George Fitch. The other one was married into a prominent Jamaican family, William Maloney. George Fitch always wanted to do a movie. He was a big fan of Downhill Racer, the 1967 movie with Gene Hackman and Robert Redford. Paramount Pictures presents Downhill Racer. How fast must a man go to get from where he's at? George wanted to do a sport project to try and make it into a movie. And William was a bucket list kind of guy. Just wanted to march in the opening ceremonies of an Olympic Games. And so in a bar one night, they saw the pushcart derby on the TV. And it occurred to them that this was a lot like the sport of boxing itself. An American living in Jamaica, George Fitch, watched the National Pushcart Derby one year and a light bulb went off. A country with so many strong and fast athletes should have a bobsled team. Can you imagine a Jamaican bobsledder? So they investigated it, they discovered both needed speed and power at the start. So they thought they were home and dry. But as you can imagine, they had real trouble getting athletes. So in the movie, John Candy plays this American character that takes the initiative in training these Jamaicans. That character, even though there's a lot of liberties taken, most closely in aligns with George Fitch. Yeah, it says like in 85 to 86, he was set up down in Jamaica to be instrumental in some commercial trade investment programs as part of Reagan's task force in the Caribbean-based initiative. So obviously he was he was in politics and, you know, he was challenged to get Jamaica to the Winter Olympics in six months. So it sounded like he wasn't someone to back down from a challenge, but prepping for the Olympics in six months is just a remarkable feat for any country. I think that's part of why this story is so popular, is that it's so absurd. There's no snow or ice. Why would they choose bobsledding to be the sport to, to train these athletes in? But what Tal alludes to is that in bobsled, all of the momentum and the speed that's needed to win the race comes from pushing that thing. There's no motor on that sled. So you need speed and power at the start. 
Where are you going to get people that can push something super fast and hard at the beginning? It's going to be these track runners and these sprinters. They saw that they were already doing something very similar in Jamaica with these push carts, pushing those down the hill. This is the one accurate part of the movie, though, is that there was like a push cart derby, Mm -hmm. right? So it sounds like they thought, oh, this translates to ice, snow, track, (laughs) four men going down. We actually have a shot at this. So they went to the army. George Fitch and Ken Barnes, my commanding officer, were friends. So he went to ask Ken to give him some athletes. So Ken said, yes, what do you need? Speed, poor, yes, yes, we got these guys. And they said, we need an athlete with proven hand-eye coordination to try to teach to drive this thing. And Ken Barnes said, yeah, I have the man for you. I was on leave from the military when my phone rang. And so it was my commanding officer told me to get a newspaper, find the ad for the Jamaica Bobstay trials, and to make sure that I was there. And, and I don't know how much you guys know about the military, but when colonels start talking to captains, it's a, a one-way conversation. And I, I remember I'd seen about 15 seconds of a clip while I was at Sandhurst of this machine going down this ice chute. I thought that people were absolutely crazy. This is a pre-internet time, no Google. So I set about finding out what bobsleigh was, called some friends, called some other friends overseas. So I pieced together the bits and pieces of information I had coming back. And what intrigued me was learning that this thing could be driven. And so I decided that if it could be driven, I would like to try to drive it. Fitch turned to the military to find a team. Stokes was a helicopter pilot. They asked if he wanted to be a bobsled driver. His reaction? What's a bobsled? I had to go and do some research because I had no idea what that was. <laughs> that was the start. But then I discovered that the thing had to be driven, and that interested me. In time, I learned a bit more about the sport, the need for speed and power, the start, the equipment, the machinery, and how it worked. And in retrospect, I've learned, obviously, a great deal about driving a bobsleigh now, and the similarities with flying a helicopter end quite soon. The forces acting on a bobsleigh are far more diverse. It operates in many different dimensions. It's held on the wall of a curve by gravity and momentum. And there are only specific points at which it's actually possible to steer. And mastering these things and then acting on them in the time frame alone is actually a very complex issue. Here we were, it's uh, something, it needed to be done, and I just thought that I was the person to do it. I was the guy who would give this a try. So he sees the 15-second clip. Well, it's a vehicle going down the ice that needs to be driven. I'm wondering if he has the confidence to say it's just a thing with forces acting on it. I'm going to visualize my way through what all these pieces are that I needed to put together, the information he was downloading, and having the confidence to be able to say, yep, that translates, yep, that translates, and just going for it. Yeah, that's a really good point, that he was preparing for it before it even physically seen a bobsled. How close do you think that visualization was to the real thing? You know, this is in an era before YouTube. They, 
<laughs> this yeah. and then I find too, he recognized there was an opportunity there and realized some person was going to be in this spot. And so why shouldn't it be me? And I felt like that was very uh, telling about his personality to say, that's going to be me. A fake yeah. until you make it. Yeah. Yeah. So we often talk professionally about having imposter syndrome. It's a sure sign that you're out of your comfort zone. You don't feel like you have the skills to actually pull this off. But then he gives this example of someone's got to be there. So he's going to be the person in that spot. And he just has the confidence to give it a go. Yeah. Now, having that confidence to get in and try and start sledding and moving and steering and, and seeing and visualizing what that might be like is maybe just where we need to get to as people and as professionals. Well said. Well said. We've learned a lot today about how visualization can help athletes achieve their goals. But are there any parallels to marketing? In our next episode, Tal explains how his visualized dreams became a reality and then how reality took him by surprise. This was my first experience of failure or a real, real setback in life. And I was determined that this moment would not define me. When do visualizations help us and how do they let us down? All this and more next time on Reach.